Uh, most of us in the room today, regardless of our age, I think, would be familiar with how fairy tales end, right? And so they lived happily ever after. Yes. As kids, we grew up hearing these words, right? But hopefully, we've grown up to realize that life really isn't like that. Life is difficult, right? Life is complex. There are a lot of problems. We heard several prayer requests today that would reflect that. Nobody lives happily ever after. Uh, Our very own Declaration of Independence uh, mentions three rights which human beings possess by birth or by nature. Do you know what those are? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Some of you were listening in school. You remember those things, right? Uh, I dare say that if I were to ask each of you here today, what is it that you want most out of life? I read this some time back, survey asking people what they wanted most out of life. And the number one answer was, can anybody guess? To be happy. Right. Money was a, it was in there, but everybody wanted to be happy. For people who are dead set on being happy, we're not doing so well, are we? We attempt to find happiness in love through relationships and marriage. But the divorce rate indicates that happiness does not come from many of those marriages. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Marriage is great. Amen. I'm waiting on my wife to respond. 31 years. Every day might not have been happy, but overall... The divorce rates indicates that happiness doesn't come from those, a lot of marriages. And I by no means want to cast a shadow of doubt over marriage. It's God's ordained institution for the family. God brought that into existence, and it's a good thing. Husbands and wives hope that having a family will bring happiness, right? Sometimes children can cause more pain than pleasure. Amen? All right. Still others try to find happiness in a career or recreational activities. Many try to deaden their pain with alcohol or drugs. But few would admit that they found lasting happiness. Recently, in the last couple of weeks, uh, comedian Robin Williams chose to take his life. If you're like me, you look at that and you say, this guy seemed to be what? Happy. I mean, he was... There was never a moment in his life, it seemed like, at least when we could see him, that he wasn't happy or he was trying to do what? Trying to make other people happy. You know, when I heard about that, I mean, for, for a couple of I just couldn't get my mind wrapped around that. I couldn't understand. And, you know, and if you're like me, there was days when I felt kind of, I felt sad. You know, here's a guy that had made everyone happy. You remember the Mork and Mandy? Remember all those? Man, it was just, he'd have you rolling in the floor and it was just, you know, it made me sad. Of course, when you know, it's the older I get, people I don't even know, when they talk about them dying on TV and tragedies and things, my heart is always heavy about those type things. You know, even many Christians lack happiness, right? Let me ask you a question. Two questions up front here. Can you be truly happy in life? Is it possible to be truly happy in life? Are you happy? That's a better question, right? I admit there are seasons in my life when happiness is like a roller coaster, right? 
It's kind of up and down. Happy one day, and then down the next. But let me ask you another question. If life didn't change at all from you, for you from this day forward, your situation didn't improve, your marriage didn't change, your family didn't change, your job situation didn't change, your body feeling better didn't change, could you be happy with life? If nothing changed from this day forward about your life, could you be happy with life? Today, as I said, we begin a series of sermons in the book of Psalms. And today we're in Psalm 1, which begins the book of Psalms. And you're like, well, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. It's Psalm 1. I mean, it begins the book. It's not hard to figure out. My point in making that statement is to draw your attention to the fact that Psalm 1 sets the stage for the entire book of Psalms. Notice how the book of Psalms begins. Blessed is the man. That's a very important statement to open up the book of Psalms. Psalms 1 is intended to draw your attention right away. It's intended to to draw you in by asking this question, maybe implying it, do you want blessing in your life? Blessed is the man. The word blessed there literally means, does anybody know what that word means? Happy or joyful. That's what Psalm 1 is about. Bible scholars say that since Psalm 1 begins the entire book of Psalms, it introduces the reader to one of the most dominant themes in the entire book of Psalms. This idea of happiness will show up in the book of Psalms a total of 26 times. Now I asked earlier, can you be truly happy in life? Is it possible? Can you live happily ever after? And if so, how can we do that? If you're looking at your hand out there, you see the main idea of what's coming from Psalm 1. It says to be happy, you must build your life on God and His Word. That's what Psalms 1 is telling us here. To be happy, you must build your life on God and His Word. Look at verse 1 there in your outline. It says, refuse the counsel of the world. That's what's going on here as we make our way beginning with verse 1. Blessed is the man, and notice what it says here, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Again, that word blessed means joyous or happy. However, it has a deeper meaning than that. The root meaning of the word refers to someone who's actually moving forward, someone who is advancing. We can even relate to someone who is leading the way. This person is leading the way. They're advancing. They're they're moving forward in life. It actually paints a picture of a person who's pressing forward in life. Pressing forward in life. And he has clear goals and he has godly pursuits in his life. Notice who this happy person, or who is this happy person? The one who does not do something. And I want you to notice... As we go through these verses here, there's three sets of threes. We're going to talk about those. Notice there's the the potential development of this person's uh, movement. Notice three key words that you see here. One is, uh, first set is walk, stand, and sit. The blessed, the happy person, notice what he does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word wicked comes from a Hebrew word meaning loose or out of joint. In our modern language, it refers to a person, you could probably say it this way, who hangs loose about God. And in case you're wondering, that's not good to hang loose about God. In other words, he doesn't take God seriously. As a result, he he disregards God and His Word. 
Then you notice there, we're told not to walk with these people. The word walk suggests that the person... Here's what's going on here. The word suggests that the person is listening at this point to the counsel of this ungodly person. The wicked has gained his ear. He's listening. And the suggestion is that this individual is a believer and he's listening to the wicked. The wicked has gained his ear. He's listening to him. It's not saying he's agreeing with the ungodly person, but he's flirting with it. He's just listening. That's what's going on here. The psalmist now takes us to the next step. and There's a downward spiral here. Next he uses the word stand. Blessed, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. Don't stand with sinners. The word stand has the idea of taking one's place with the unbeliever, and it means you stay there a while. You kind of hang out. Are you, are you getting the picture? Listening. Then it moves just kind of hanging out. Spending time. The word sinners comes from a Hebrew word which means to miss the mark. It refers to those who live in opposition to God's standard. The standard God has revealed in His Word. God has set up a standard in His Word. You shall be holy because I am holy. I expect that from my creation. I expect that from mankind. And we, if we're thinking any at all, we're realizing that we don't meet that standard. And the psalmist is saying here, don't stand, don't hang out with those who are in opposition to the standard of God. Then you notice the word way there. Some of you are, have the word, uh, translation has the word path, refers to the manner of life, the way one lives. To stand in the way of sinners means involvement with the sinners and their sinful behavior. You're taking... Uh, you're, you're participating. You, you're, you're, you've listened and you have hung out with this person and now you are beginning to what? Behave. It carries the idea of taking one's place with an unbeliever. Now, these people might not be cursing God, but they're, they're, they're simply ignoring Him. Uh, one commentator I read this week referred to these people as practical atheists. They say there is a God, but they live their life like there is no God. You've met people like that. Now, I don't suggest you say, well, my pastor said you're a practical atheist. I wouldn't call them that to their face. But that's what they do. I believe there's a God, but I just live my life as if there's not. You might work with people like this. And again, don't tell them that they're a practical atheist. You might work with people like this. You might even go to church with people like this. God really doesn't matter to them. He really doesn't factor into their life. Decisions are made without Him. Life is lived with no connection to Him except maybe an hour or two on Sunday. Then after that, we go back to our lives and we do our things. Now, before we um, uh, may think too much of ourselves, we have a tendency to do that. Let me remind us that we're all sinners. Amen? We've all missed the mark of God. No one has... Is an exception to that. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us have met that standard that God requires of all human mankind. But, when we understand and realize that, we hear the gospel, and when we repent and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we become what? Converted sinners. Instead of living to please self, the saved sinner seeks to do what? Please God and grow and his learning of how he denies himself. He, he takes us his cross. He denies himself and he follows Jesus. He loves God and he loves other people. 
The Bible teaches that the purpose of our relationship with lost sinners needs to change after we come to Christ. When we come to Jesus, the relationship we have with lost people needs to change. On the one hand, if, if you run with worldly people in their godless way of life, what happens? They influence you, right? They'll pull you down. This is why a new Christian, and I know this is going to uh, maybe a little bit hard to swallow, the new Christian needs to cut off close relationships with former friends who would pull you into their sinful behavior. Because this is what happens. They'll draw you back into that way of life. You may not think so, but don't be deceived. I had someone illustrate this to me one time like this. It's like standing in a chair. You, you're the lost... You're the converted sinner, you're, you're, you're the person standing in the chair and you're reaching down and the person below you is a picture of the lost person and you're trying to indulge with them and live your life with them and you're trying to pull them up. Now, the, I'm going to explain this a little bit more here. But what normally happens if you stand in a chair and you reach down and try to pull someone up, what happens? They'll pull you out on your head. You'll be in the floor with them. On the other hand, we're not supposed to cut ourselves off completely from sinners. I think Christians should have lost friends. Some of you right now are going, heretic. That's what you're thinking of me right now. I should have lost friends? I think you should have lost friends. Maybe even go to lunch with them. And you sit down and talk with them. Yes, we should have lost friends. I tell people this all the time. We, we, we must know where the line is at, but we should never, not never, that's a double negative, and some of these school teachers are just dying right now. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with having lost friends. But you don't join in their simple ways. Now you associate with them as a sinner saved by grace, and you're seeking to do what? bring them to Christ. That's what your relationship is with that lost sinner. Yes, I think we should have friends who are lost. How else are they going to hear the gospel? Look at the last step of this dangerous progression here at the end of verse 1. Blessed is a man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. The word scoffers here has the idea of being proud and self-sufficient. It refers to those who mock God. Now, you notice we began with just um, beginning to move and ignore God, and we moved to hating God. We'll not follow God to sit with. It means you belong to such a crowd. Make note of this this progression of, of life of sin that's going downward. A person doesn't fall away and reject the faith all at once. There are degrees of moving away from God. Notice those three sets of words, and we're going to talk about those again. Notice what happens. Walk, stand, and sit. First you walk. You're still moving, but now in the wrong direction. Then you stand. You're, you're lingering with sin. You're hanging out. And then finally you sit. You're, you're ease. You feel comfortable with these people. You notice the progression there? Then notice the other set of three words. Wicked, sinners, and scoffers. First you're with the wicked, those who they kind of hang loose about God. Then you're with sinners, those who openly violate God's command. Then you're with scoffers, those who openly reject the truth. You see what happens? How they keep pulling 
you down. Notice, thirdly, the third set of three words, counsel, weigh, and seek. If you listen to counsel, you begin to what? Think wrong thoughts. Then you stand in the path, you engage in wrong behavior, and finally you sit in the seat. You belong to the wrong crowd and have adopted the attitude of that person. And when you reach that point, guess what? Satan has got you. He has got you. The blessed person, the truly happy person, what does he not do, congregation? He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Blessed, happy is the man who does not do these things. Now, let's do a little point of application here. How are we supposed to apply? What do we do with this? There's a couple things I just want to tell you. And it's simple. Guard your mind. You realize that between your ears is a precious gift from God that He gave you? And you're to guard that. Remember what the serpent said to Eve in the book of Genesis? You remember what when He came and tempted Eve? What did He say to her? Has God really said this? You're listening. You're, you're listening to counsel. Has God really said those things? Guard your mind doesn't mean that you become a non-thinker. It means that you critique everything by this. Everything that comes into our life, every world of view that comes into our lives, every counsel we hear, we to line that up with the Word of God. We're to guard our minds. Secondly, guard your friends. Those whom you choose as close Friends, what's the key word there? Close friends should be committed to the things of God. Your closest relationships with friends, again, you have relationships with sinners, right, in order to share the gospel with them, but your closest, most intimate friends should be people who are committed to the things of God. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, What fellowship has light with darkness? Most of you remember this old saying, Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Howard Hendricks, who is a, a professor at uh, a seminary out in Dallas, Texas, he's famous for making this statement. The two factors which will most influence where you will be in ten years from now are the books you read and the friends you make. That's pretty amazing. The books you read and the friends you have can determine where you'll be ten years from now. So guard your mind and guard your friends. And yes, reading is a good thing. It will not cause your brain cells to go away. Trust me. Verse 1 tells us what not to do. Don't walk, don't stand, don't sit. Verse 2 tells us what to do. Notice who's the happy person. It's the one who who does something. Look at verse 2. The outline says, loving the counsel of God's Word. But, verse 2, but is a contrast word. You have this, but now you have this. But His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. A truly happy person doesn't do this, but he does do this. What does he do, church? He delights in the law of God. Delight means to take joy in something. Something that brings pleasure. The word law there is a synonym for the Word of God. So when you see law, that's referring to the Word of God. But here's what you need to understand. It refers to the Word of God, but guess what it refers to? All. Of God's Word. Not just part of it, but all of it. The blessed, happy person is happy. Why is he happy, church? Because he what? He delights in God's 
Word. Now, what does it mean to delight in God's Word? Now, be patient with me as I begin to describe this to you. Don't jump to a conclusion, okay? The Word is used in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 34, verse 19. And in the book of Esther, chapter 2, 14. It's used there referring to a man. Now listen, don't jump to conclusions. It's referring to a man delighting in a woman. It's not what you think, and I don't need to go there, but it's just not what some of you may be thinking, delighting in a woman. And I'm going to explain that to you. Now, that tells us something about this word, right? Example. Have you ever noticed when a young man delights in a young lady? You notice I chose my words carefully to help us to understand what delighting a young man, delighting in a young what? Lady. There's a difference between a lady and a woman. That's why I chose those words. When a young man delights in a young lady, what does he do? He rearranges his priorities so that suddenly he has plenty of time to spend with her, does he not? Man, he can move everything around in his life and he can arrange and make time for her. And he doesn't do it because he has to. He does it because what? He wants to. Nothing interferes with his time, with the object of his delight. Here's my question. Do you delight in God's Word in that sense? That's what the Word means. It means you rearrange, you set up your priorities, you get, you do whatever you got to do to get time for God and His Word. Do you make time to spend the Word because you delight in it? Or has reading God's Word become a duty? It's easy to fall into duty mentality toward the Word of God. You, you grind through your reading and you check it off your list. Pastor, he's done that. And he'll do it again. It's easy to fall into the duty mentality toward God's Word. Again, you grind through it and you check it off the list, but you don't take time to do what? To commune with the living God. And then to make changes in your life based on what you've read. The writer of Psalm 1 is implying that we delight in the Word because it is the way God has His way in our lives. It's the way God has His way in our lives, so we want, we want to delight in that. Notice next, the next part of verse 2 helps us better understand the way uh, of properly reading the Word of God. He not only delights, but listen to this. He, what does He do, church? He meditates day and night. Meditate means to think over by talking to oneself. How many of you ever talked to yourself? Go ahead. We all do it, Right? It means to ponder, to weigh carefully, literally to sound it out, to call to remembrance. So the next time you see someone talking to themselves, it may not be because they have a mental problem, they're meditating. Right? Psalm chapter 143, verse 5, defines meditation. This should be on your handout, the the reference, not the words. Here's what David says. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. What did he say? I meditate on how many of God's doings? All of them. I ponder. I think about them. I repeat them back to myself. I remember the days of old. I meditate on your doings. I muse. That word muse means to chew. I muse. I chew on the work of your hands. What is he saying? I reflect on God and His Word and what I know to be true about Him. I meditate. 
Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. Does anybody know what it says? Day and night. Sounds like Psalm 1 verse 2. The idea is there consistency. Continually meditating on the Word so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Do you hear what he said? In order to... You don't get a pass on... Um, I didn't know to do that, so therefore I'm not held accountable for it. Right? God is telling Joshua, you need to meditate on my word day and night. And here's why. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in there. You're like, really? God wants us to study His Word to the point we, we can know all that's in there? And, and yeah. That's God's standard. Will you and I ever fully, completely make it to that point? I don't think so. But by God's grace, we pursue that and God will help us. But Listen. So that you may be careful to do according to all that's written therein, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You want to prosper and have good success as a Christian? This is it. There is no exceptions. There is no alternatives. Now, I want to take a side note here. There's a trend, and, uh, trend excuse me, in evangelical church today regarding this idea of meditative prayer. Okay? Now, I'm not against prayer. Bible commands that we pray. But there's this idea of meditative prayer, and it's found in devotional books such as Jesus Calling. You're going, I have one of those. The author of that devotional puts forth a practice of simply remaining silent and waiting to hear the voice of God. If you read her devotionals carefully, she tells you that what she's putting in her devotionals, she sits and she waits to hear a voice from God, and God responds and gives her that. Now you might be saying, well, that sounds pretty good. But there's a problem with that. We don't wait to hear from God. Why? Because God has already spoken. The idea of biblical meditation is not sitting in silence, waiting to hear a subjective voice. Instead, it's recalling, pondering, going over in your minds, and even speaking the truth to yourselves about what God has already said. You're not sitting around waiting for some mystical, subjective voice to say, do this, but do what God has already said. Your responsibility is to delight in, meditate on the Word of God. My question is, do we meditate? Do we delight in God's Word? To the extent that we build our life on His Word... That determines the degree of happiness in your life. Look at verses 3 and 6. We need to move quickly. Your outline says the results of the counsel you choose to follow. Notice in verse 3 what it's like to be the blessed man. The person who delights and meditates on the Word of God. Notice what he's like. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now you and I read those words and we're like, a tree planted by streams of water. To appreciate this, you have to think about this picture the way the first readers of this psalm would have thought when they heard these words. They lived in a dry, parched desert in the Middle East. The idea of a beautiful, fruit-bearing tree located by streams of water to them would have been what? You ever seen those movies where somebody sees a mirage? It's kind of what... If you're, if you're the first reader that you're going... That's a, that's a beautiful, that's a striking picture. The illustration is of a tree and it's firmly rooted. It's, it's healthy. And why? Because it's able to draw water from a nearby stream. 
It grows strong and it grows stable. It's solid and able to withstand drought and storm. Here's the the thing I want you to see. The streams of water are meant to point us, it's a picture pointing us to the Word of God. And the living Word, Jesus Himself. On your handout there you have a reference. Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. Here's what Paul says there. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith. Look again at verse 3. He yields fruit in its season. Here's the second effect of delighting in God's Word. It yields fruit in its season. It's referring to spiritual fruit. Delighting and meditating on God's Word results in, some of you are thinking right now, or should be, Galatians. The fruits of the Spirit, which are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Christ-likeness. Those things being produced in, listen, not only in, but coming from the person in abundance. That's the effect that the Word of God has on the soul of a believer. It yields fruit in abundance when he delights and meditates on God's Word. Notice next in verse 3, its leaves do not wither. Again, picture hot, parched, Middle East desert. Hot winds are blowing and the rain is not falling. All the other trees that are not planted by streams of water are what? They're what? They're dying and they're withering. But in spite of all the heat and drought, your leaf remains what? Green. It does not. It comes from delighting and meditating on God's Word. You're a tree that's planted by a stream of water. The happiness of this person, the picture here is it's long-lasting, it's deep. It does not depend on which way the wind is blowing or whether the rain is falling. It gets its life from an absolute changeless source, and that's God's Word. Lastly, look, the psalmist points, or he sort of sums this up by applying it. And whatever he does, he prospers. That's a truly happy person, is it not? The person God blesses with prosperity, no matter what circumstances of life he may find himself in. Don't misunderstand this. This is not prosperity gospel. God is not promising financial prosperity here, but He's promising soul prosperity. The so-called health and wealth teaching being promoted by a lot of people we see on TV claims that God promises financial prosperity. That is a lie of the devil. God's people may be poor in this world's goods and afflicted by many trials, but they are rich toward God with true prosperity when it comes to the spiritual, the soul of their life. Now, let me say this. Some of you, some of you, including myself, if we were to be perfectly honest, you would admit that you sometimes question the truthfulness of this psalm. Like me, you know people who leave God out of their lives, and they seem to be genuinely happy and prosperous, right? They seem to have good marriages and happy families. They seem to be doing just fine without God. You know people like that, right? And you may know others who are godly people who build their lives on God and His Word, and yet they're hit with trial after trial after trial. You know somebody like that, right? What about that? You're going, okay, preacher, help us out. You brought it up. Let's explain it. 
The psalmist does it for us, or God does it for us. Notice how he evaluates temporary prosperity of the wicked. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What does the psalmist say about temporary prosperity of the wicked? He tells you to evaluate that in light of eternity. You look at that in light of what's coming in eternity. Notice it says there, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. This is a stark contrast to the man in verses 2 and 3 who does not walk, sit, or stand. Unlike a strong, fruitful tree by rivers of water, the ungodly are what? They're chaff. They're dust in the wind. Straw. Chaff has the idea of that which passes away and it's useless. Listen to me carefully. This is God's view of the wicked. It's His Word. He's saying, here's how we're to look at their temporary prosperity in this life. Those who cut me off, here's how I view them. God's view takes eternity into account and says, those who leave me out of their lives are worthless, useless chaff. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Notice the word therefore. It points us back to verse 4. The wicked are not so. What are the wicked are not, what are the wicked not so about? They are not so as it relates to verses 1 through 3. They do. And they're not like a tree planted by the streams of water. Therefore, or for that reason, what does it say about it? They will not stand in the judgment. How many of you have ever heard of saying, he doesn't have a leg to stand on? That's where this comes from. Their argument, their case, will not hold up in God's court one day. They'll not have a leg to stand on in the judgment. Notice the next, nor the sinners, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There will not be a place for them among God's people. That's what that's talking about. They won't be in heaven where those who have made, been made righteous through faith in Christ. They will not be there. Look at verse 6. And here's why. For, or because the Lord, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. Even though it may not look like it at times. The Lord knows. The word know means to be intimately acquainted with. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. According to Revelation 21.8, the wicked will be condemned to an eternal punishment in the lake of fire. God says, they may have everything now. And listen, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong with being rich. I heard someone say the other day, There's nothing wrong with being rich, but it's a sin to die that way. You you take that point, it's worth you you meditate on that during the week. Not only is life here meaningless, even worse, at the end, you stand under judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. At the end of life, you will stand before God, and you'll hear one of two words. Forgiven or condemned. There will be no other way to look at it. 
What is it going to be like for you in that moment? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? My question for you is, what will you exchange? What accomplishment will you trade for your soul? What earthly dream will you say was worth the forfeiting of your soul for all eternity? Psalm 1 has put before us two ways to live. The man who knows God, he lives with an abundant, never-ceasing source of joy that endures through all the seasons of life, and when he dies, he's received into eternal glory. The ungodly, the wicked, live with increasing disgust and a sense of futility in this life, and they have no remedy in pain, they can find no deeper meaning in suffering, and when they die, they go into the judgment. I ran across this quote this week and I apologize for not remembering where I got it. I just put it down. The closest a Christian ever comes to hell is pain and suffering on this side of the grave. The closest a non-Christian comes to heaven is the short-lived fading pleasures of this side of the grave. Which of these two ways do you want to live? One leads to living happily ever after. Psalm 1 reveals the secret to being happy. It's not enough to simply be a Christian or to try Jesus or to go to church or to have a get-out-of-hell-free card. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Again, this refers to the way you think. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Refers to how you behave. Nor does he sit in the seat of the scoffers. It's talking about who you find your identity with. Someone is saying, let your mind, your behaviors, and your identity be shaped by this. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to be a Christian or even be saved. You have to drive the roots of your soul deep into the gospel so that your thinking, your actions, and your identity are shaped by it. Here's what you and I do a lot of times as Christians. We think the gospel is just for when the day we got saved. I've got my ticket, I'm going to heaven, I'm missing hell, and that's all I'm worried about. The gospel must become an anchor for your soul. The gospel provides roots that go deep. It provides deep roots so that whatever seasons you go through, whether they're winters of holiness, droughts of depression, storms of temptation, your soul remains steadfast. Let your delight be in God's Word. Let the Word of God delight your soul. And here's why. Because this book points you to your Savior. The Word of God reminds you of the faithfulness of God. The Word of God reminds you of the Gospel. Let's make a couple quick applications. The secret to happiness is this. It's driving your roots deep in the Gospel. Driving your soul deep into the Gospel. There's two things I want you to do as application, and they're pretty simple. Get serious about reading the Word of God. Is your delight in the law of the Lord? The idea is that the Word of God becomes such a delight to you that it frees you from all the allurements of the world. You only escape the pleasures of the world through a greater pleasure, and that greater pleasure is found in God's Word pointing you to Christ. Now, I understand. 
You may say, I read, but I just don't get anything from it. There's some days and there's some weeks I just don't really feel out reading the Bible. Pastor's raising his hand. I would love to feel that way about God and His Word, but I don't. I have those times in my life. And you're going, you're a pastor. I'm just telling you. I'm like everybody else. I I struggle with that at times. What do you do? You confess your cold heart to God. God is a God of abundant grace for all who call out to Him. He never turns anyone away. You go to God and say, God, my heart's cold. I just don't want to read the Word. God, give me grace. Help me to have a delight for Your Word. Notice, talked about the word meditating. And I told you, it means to talk to yourself, but literally it means to mumble to yourself. To mumble the gospel over and over. Now, you guys who farm have cows, right? What do cows do? Chew the cud, right? Cow wakes up, eats grass, lays down, takes a nap, gets up. No, no, this is not pleasant. He regurgitates his grass. He chews on it some more. He lays down. He takes another nap. He gets up. He does the process again. And each time, you know what he's doing? He's extracting nutrients from that grass. Every time he regurgitates and chews that cud, he's getting more nutrients out of it. And he does this until what? Everything's gone. Here's what I want you to do. Read your Bible like a cow. That's how we read the Word of God. It's like a cow eats grass. And number two, quickly. you got to get more serious about the Word of God. Number two, you need to get more serious about the church. Not the building, but the people. Verse 1 says, Don't stand in the way of sinners or find your place among the scoffers. Get serious about the church, God's people. And I want to refer to this as community. Does everyone understand what the word community means? It means what? A group of people. The church is a community. It shapes you. Adults, your friends are your future you. Whatever friends you have, that is the future you. And parents, your kids' friends are the future them. You want your children to go spiritually? then you want them to have people in their lives that will make a difference in how they turn out for the Lord. The church, the people of God, should be their community. Their closest friends should not be worldly people. They can have lost friends who are sinners, but those should not be their closest, most intimate relationships. The people of God, the community of God's people should be the place that shapes their lives. Can I say this? Parents, if if you don't take church seriously, your children are not going to take church seriously. It's just not going to happen. It's not an osmosis thing. Now, by God's grace, some of your children can become serious about the church. But listen, parents, your children follow your lead. The church should not be an event you you tend occasionally on the weekend. It should be your community. These people should be your life. Your best and deepest relationships should be the people sitting in these pews. There's no such thing as a serious relationship with God without deep commitment to the Word of God and to the people of God. Build your life on God and His Word and you'll live happily ever after. That's promised right here. Both now and through eternity, 
And listen, that's no fairy tale. That's the Word of God. That's what He makes us a promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. for reminding us. God, we we referred to as sheep in the Bible for a reason. We are dumb, we forget, and we have to be reminded. God, this week, as the pastor of this church, I've had to repent of my failure to delight in the Word of God. One who studies the Word of God to lead people to love Jesus, I, I struggle with delighting at times which tells me others do as well. And so, Father, I pray today that, God, You would help us to see that Your Word and Your Gospel is the lifeblood of our lives as Your people. God, help us to take more seriously Your Word, to take more seriously the church of the living God, the people of God who shape our lives, who help us walk worthy of the Gospel, who point us to Jesus, who remind us, yes, You live in a fallen world, You struggle, there's heartache, there's strife, but... Keep the faith. Keep hoping in Jesus because eternity's coming. God knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked He will judge. I pray for that one here lost today without Christ, that God, You'd be merciful to them to awaken them to their, their future. That they one day will stand before You and give an account for their godless life. And yet, God, You stand before us today offering mercy through Christ to those who turn you away. If they'll turn and trust in Jesus, they'll turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. You will save them. And their eternity is secure. Father, thank you for the hope we have today. And help us now as we respond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, I'll ask you to stand this morning and our musicians are going to play. You're a guest with us.